0: Well, it's good to be with you as our eight to 10s go and enjoy the Word. At their level, I invite you
1: to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. This is the last sermon in our series on the vision of treasuring Christ's church. And next week we will begin uh, back in our series in Romans chapter 8. So, excited about today, excited about turning the corner and diving back into Romans 8. But uh, this morning we will be in Luke chapter 10. So I invite you to look there in a passage that if you've been around the church, you might have heard uh, it called the Parable of the Good
0: Samaritan. So, what I want to do is I want to read verses 25 through 32 and then pray, and then we'll dive in. If you know the story of the Parable of the Good
1: Samaritan, it is a story of a lawyer going to Jesus and asking what he must do to be saved. Jesus hears his answer and then responds with a story about three individuals walking to from Jerusalem to Jericho and seeing a man who had been beaten on the side of the road. Two pass, one stops, one cares for him, and Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Love like this person did. And right after that, Mary and Martha, there's a story about how Martha is just all anxious and frantic about doing for the Lord. And Mary is at Jesus' feet and Martha's a little frustrated and Mary is where she's supposed to be, at the feet of Jesus. So this is the context, this is where we are. And right before the lawyer uh, gets the answer from Jesus, these are the words that we read. So this is the beginning of the parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke ten twenty-five 25-32. And behold, the lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher... What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Notice those words, lawyer, putting him to the test. So Jesus says to him, well, what's written in the law? You're a lawyer. What's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've answered this correctly. If you just do that... You'll live. Let's pray. Father, I pray that today you will help us to love you and to be fully convinced that we could only love you or others because you first loved us. Overwhelm us with your love for us today that we might overflow in love for others. As we gather in this moment, may we treasure you together. And as we leave, may we live sent lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're looking out and you see a husband, and he is listening to his wife, and he reaches out and gets Kleenex and wipes a tear from her eyes, you see him serve her, you see them laughing together, You see him consistently, because you now start to observe frequently. You see him taking her on dates and showing her affection and speaking tenderly to her, not aggressively, and meeting needs consistently over time. The onlooker would say, I think that guy loves her. So here's another story. What if you see another person, and this other person... Consistently goes out and begins to provide medicine to those who are sick on the street. Actually provides a home for a homeless family. Provides clothing for one whose clothes are tattered. Provides transportation for somebody who can't get to work. Provides work for somebody who had no job. And is just lavishing them. But actually not lavishing them from afar. But has entered into their lives. Becoming friends with these individuals, crossing racial, economic, age, boundaries, and someone comes up to that person and says, why are you so kind? And they say, well, because my grandmother did with her life these very things, and she taught me. To love other people. And she was a multimillionaire and gave me all of her resources and said, Go and love those in need. So, the first individual, you see them loving their wife, you are astounded by their love for that individual. The second story, you are not only thankful. For their love for that individual, but now all of a sudden you're curious and mysteriously thankful for someone you haven't even met. The grandmother, if you're a recipient of this love, this is the church. The church are a group of people who have been so loved. They put on the display of the love of someone else towards them to other people. The one who loves puts on display the love of another loved one's love. This is the church. In the Roman Empire, thousands of citizens of the Roman Empire and those around the Roman Empire converted to Christianity, even though there was significant persecution. You ask the question, why? Tim Keller in his book, How to Reach the West Again, spoke of a historian named Larry Hurtado, who said, in large part, many converted despite persecution to Christianity because of the shocking, generous love of the church. And he said that that love centered around five major ideas, uniquely interwoven elements that don't stand separate, but together as kind of one army of love. And it was at this. The church was one. A non-retaliatory community marked by a commitment to forgiveness. Two, the church was multi-ethnic and multi-racial. Three, the church was highly committed to caring for the poor and the marginalized. Four, the church was strongly and practically against abortion and infanticide, a defender of children. And five, the church revolutionized the sex ethic with a biblical worldview on sexuality. Last week, Pastor Ronjur walked us through <clears throat> numbers four and five, why we are a people who value the sanctity of life and how we are a voice for the voiceless, and why we hold the sexual ethic that we do and how the scriptures lay out that as the place of greatest security is when we follow God's plan for gender and sexuality. Today, I'm going to deal with one, two, and three. So we took him on the sermon to deal with two, and I feel very dauntingly approaching three in one sermon. So here we go. Today, I'm going to mention, we must be a community of forgiveness. We must be committed to being a multiracial, multi-ethnic people, and we must be committed to caring for the poor and the marginalized. Now, as Tim Keller points out, he says this, if you just step back and look at one through five, two and three might be said to have more of a progressive agenda, according to American politics. Three and four might have more of a conservative agenda, according to American politics. And number one, really nobody likes it unless they want forgiveness for themselves. But what I think we need to realize is that what we read in the scriptures is that the Bible does not share a binary system of political ideologies. It doesn't tell us to pick one over another. It tells us to live this all out faithfully. Now, I know balance is not popular on social media. More more balanced approach you take, usually you get hate from both sides. But our aim is biblical faithfulness, not social acceptance. So, I want it to be said of us. I'm reading through the Bible reading plan. We're in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 6 verse 10 says this of Stephen. They could not withstand his wisdom. And they could not withstand the spirit with which he was speaking. They could not withstand his wisdom, which he goes on to show us his biblical faithfulness. And they could not withstand the spirit in which he was speaking, which we know to be gentleness, love, joy given by the Holy Spirit. I just pray that that's what can be said about us. We're biblically faithful in not only what we do, but how we do. So, refusing to be swept up and characterized by American politics, we want to be people of the book, shaped by the Bible. We want to sit at Jesus' feet. We want His agenda to be our agenda. And I just want you to leave here happily convinced. That's my aim. That these things are biblical and worth giving your life for. That other people might treasure Jesus above all. So. As I've said already, each one of these worthy of a sermon in and of itself, and we get one shot. So we better get going. Today will then be a reminder that these things exist in the Bible, not necessarily how to do them all. You follow? We're going to be convinced that these five things are biblical. We've already talked about two. We'll deal with three. But we cannot run to the do before we run to the why. When we hear of these five things, make no mistake, they are not the end. They are not the end in and of themselves. The goal is not the pat on the back that you are really loving or the goal is not to do these things for a sense of social significance. The goal is much bigger and much greater. The primary goal of treasuring Christ Church. The primary goal of Christ Church is to make the Bible's audio video. To take what we read in the scriptures and put it on display with how we interact with one another and how we interact with lost people. We as a church, the gathered church, are meant to display the beauty of Jesus and his love to the world. I don't know if you've ever walked into Best Buy, but if you walk into Best Buy, it doesn't take long before you see these life-size TV screens all kind of flashing the same thing luring you in with their crystal clear imagery or for some of you who hate technology, it makes you nauseous and you'd rather not step in. But if you walk in and you look at these TVs very, I've never met someone that walks in and says, give me the fuzziest TV you have. That's usually not what you go in to buy a TV for. You're looking for clarity. You're looking for crystal clear image. And this is what Jesus says about his church. The church is not meant to be a fuzzy representation, but we're meant to be together fighting for the clearest image of the beauty and love of Jesus that we can work towards. And what we're saying is historically, these five things have characterized the church to focus in the image of God's beauty and love for the world. Why do I know that this is the point of the church? Because Paul tells us. Ephesians chapter 3, it says this. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Let's stop right there. Grace was given to Paul for two reasons. Basically, show and tell. Except this is in the order of tell and show. Tell of the unsearchable riches of Christ. And bring to light or show. <laughs> For those of you who are online, my watch decided to um, think I said Siri, and it started talking to me. So, we'll pause. You all needed that apparently because I trust the providence of Jesus. So, we're going to dive back in intensely to Ephesians chapter three. Okay, here we go. Woo. I will try not to say anything that sounds like that S-I-R-I word. Okay. Two things grace was given for. Show and tell. Tell and show. Tell the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light what is the mystery hidden for ages. What is the mystery hidden for ages? Hit reverse back to verse 6 of Ephesians Chapter
0: three, and it says, hey, the mystery is this Gentiles are fellow heirs with Jews, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So now let's go back to Ephesians chapter three. Grace was given.
1: So that the unsearchable riches of Christ might be proclaimed and that they might be shown off to be so great because they bring warring individuals, Jews and Gentiles into one new humanity. How will God display those realities, the unsearchable riches of Christ and this two becoming one verse 10 of Ephesians chapter three? It says this so that through the church gathered people of God so that through the church, the manifold wisdom, the multifaceted wisdom, the image is like a diamond from multiple angles, the multifaceted, multicolored wisdom of God might be made known to not only one another, but to the cosmic powers that God has shown off his greatness, taking two and making them one people. You follow this so far? The church is the display of of the unsearchable riches of Christ and that God's people are a multi-ethnic people who trust in the Messiah. That's what the church is doing. How will the riches of Christ become 3D? How will it go from audio to video? The church relating to one another and living lives of love put it on display. So, today's aims, church is a living display of the love of God because the church is a people loved by God. And we are forgiving because we are forgiven. And we unite across racial ethnic lines because Christ unites us as the members of one body. And we care for the poor because we are poor in spirit. It must begin with this idea of a forgiving community because the only way we love is that we first been forgiven. So let's look at it. How in the world would be a community marked by forgiveness? We are forgiving because we are forgiven. Look at the text that we're focusing in on. I just read the passage earlier, Luke chapter 10. That lawyer comes, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? His motive is to try to trick Jesus. So he says, well, how do you read the law? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus knows the man's heart. It's the right answer verbally. But the lawyer is still trying to relate to
0: Jesus via transaction. His deeds would earn acceptance, which is why he is trying to qualify
1: who a neighbor is later on in the passage. But let's just go with his answer. Love God, lawyer, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered rightly. Go do that and you'll have eternal life. How do you do? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. How do you do that? Do it. And then how long should you do it? Is three minutes enough? Or do we need hours? Days? You know that the standard is perfect love forever. Perfect love for God. Perfect love for neighbor. Forever. That's actually a devastating means to eternal life. Because if the history of Israel ever taught us anything, it was that there was no way... For them to meet the standard external walls could not change their heart. They needed the heart of stone to become a heart of flesh in order for them to ever love God with their heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love their neighbor as themselves. Abraham taught us that it was not by doing for God, but by trusting him that you actually are justified, made righteous before God. And Jesus came interesting word that's used in Romans chapter five. Jesus came to demonstrate To put on display the love of God for us because we could not save ourselves. And that while we were sinners, Jesus died for us so that if we would trust that he alone is the sole means by which we can find forgiveness and cleansing and justification and being brought into his family and being given eternal life, if we focus of sins and eternal life, we can be saved. The demonstration of love was not our demonstration to the world. Our deeds fall short. The demonstration of love that stuck was Jesus' demonstration of love before a lost world, before the Father. And therefore, our only hope is not looking at our lives to fix everything. It's looking at his life. We look at the wrong life. And I mention all of this because... When we talk about loving neighbor, when we talk about be forgiving people, we must be a multi-ethnic people. We must be a people that care for the poor. You hear a bunch of do's. And those are good. But not if it's not coming from inside. I'm reading a book called Deeper by Dane Ortland. It's a wonderful book. And in that book, he uses this illustration. He says, I don't tell my child to get nourishment from food. And then take the food and smear it all over their face and all over their body. Why don't you do that? Because food only has its nourishing effects when it's on the inside, right? So you eat the food, it comes on the inside, it creates nourishment. The same with these five things. What good does it do to say, do this, if you don't first know that you are loved and secure? And accepted on the inside. If not, what you do is you try to love your neighbor for acceptance rather than from acceptance. For a sense of significance rather than from a place of value and security and significance. You flip it all around. You take the second command, love neighbor as self, before you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We need a heart change and we need the security of God's love for us. And honestly, it's a deep burden of mine. Because so many people try to relate to God from the outside in. If I do for him, surely he will accept me. Many act like God got you into the family, but it's your job to keep
0: yourself in the family. And if you just do enough, then he will accept you. That is not the gospel.
1: Sometimes we try to do and love others for acceptance, for intimacy with God, but you need to know you are loved, you are accepted, you are not guilty, you are reconciled to God, you are part of His family by grace alone. So when you hear, be a forgiving people, the only way you can be a forgiving people is when you are astounded that you're forgiven. Think about this week. Seriously, think about this week. We are all guilty of some, parts, or all of this This string of things we've been angry, greedy, selfish,
0: lustful, deceitful, jealous, not trusting Jesus, deeply anxious, despairing, and not hopeful in Christ. Some of our good God-given emotions have turned into controlling obsessions. We have loved things more than God, and yet we read all these promises in the Bible. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus always lives to make intercession for you. Listen
1: to Isaiah 30 verse 18. The Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. And think about Romans 8, nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And when you hear that, if you literally rehearsed your past week, and you know, guilty, 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 then what you genuinely deep down process in all of that is those promises are for me if I get my act together. Those promises are for me, I will be loved if I get more lovely. Newsflash, you weren't loved in the first place because you were lovely, you were loved because it's God's nature to love And when you get the fact that you are saved by grace alone, you are a recipient of his love. Then you don't try to work yourself out of your sin. You trust him to wash you clean of your sin. You confess and you trust him that he's good enough to make you new. It's a total flip of everything. And I don't want the burden to be placed upon you. When you hear these things, you can get wounded and and think that the healing for your wounds is your own actions. The healing for your wounds is the grace of God in Christ Jesus who died the death that you deserve, rose to new life. The spirit lives inside of you so that you have victory in him. Let's live lives of victorious love because we've first been loved. So the only way to be secure in his love and to be forgiving of other people is to recall your need for forgiveness and your inability to save yourself. I tell you, the older I get. The older I get, the more aware of my neediness I grow. But what's interesting, and genuinely has been a work of God's grace, it's not in a morose and depressing way. It's actually in a thankful way. Thankful God you saved me. That right there, that small task that I just did, that was your grace. But that refraining from those words, that was your grace. Right there, you didn't treat me like I deserved. Instead, you drew near. You comforted me. That consequence, I know that that's not coming from your wrath, but coming from your love, so that I would actually be more joyful, fuller in Him. These are the things. It's just like, yes, grow aware of your need for forgiveness, but what we need for deep change is to deepen in our awareness of God's love for us. We will display shocking love and forgiveness the more we are shocked by Jesus' love and forgiveness. So, that's why Paul says, forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Where does forgiveness come from? Because we've been forgiven. What might it look like? Forgiveness, we get hurt. We don't hurt back. We get used, we don't use that, we don't seek revenge. We get emotionally hit or slandered at work in friend circles on social media, we do not return evil for evil. But forgiveness is not just refraining from the bad. Forgiveness is actively choosing to do good. It's choosing love. It's wanting the good of that person. We are broken that they're choosing that sin, even that sin that's against you. And you see it as a pain against in their own heart and as a sin against Christ. When they confess, we choose not to rehearse their wrongs or identify them with their failures. We love them as Christ loves us. We do them good. We count others more significant than ourselves. We're going to literally get to Romans 12 in the fall, (laughs) but as a preamble to Romans 12 in the fall, I give you this repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, strive to live at peace with all beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God because it's written vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay to the contrary. This is the good we must do. If your enemy is hungry, feed them. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Shocking, otherworldly forgiveness, cheek turning love, a community marked by non retaliatory forgiveness will only happen when we are convinced that we are loved. You're loved. And the deeper you go into that love, The broader, deeper, more consistent our forgiveness will be. We are forgiving because we've been forgiven. Forgiven. The church is meant to display that. The church is also meant to display the unsearchable riches of Christ, not only through being a forgiving people, but being a people united across racial, ethnic lines. I'm using race as color of skin. I'm using ethnic as culture. Okay? So multiracial is a sense of multiple colors. Multiethnic ethnic is many different cultures coming together. That being the case, Jesus died to take the two and make them one. To take the war and make them one new people. So we unite across racial and ethnic lines because Christ unites us. Calls us members of the same body. Look at Luke 10 some more. So right after he said. Love God the our hearts, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do that for eternal life. Then he moves forward. Verse 29. But the lawyer desiring to justify himself. Very interesting turn of phrase. <laughs> Making himself right before God. The lawyer seeking to make himself right before God. Said to Jesus. And who is my neighbor if you get the picture this lawyer had a category of neighbor that included some and excluded others the ESV study Bible said this to it he said he asked this question to exclude responsibility for others by making
0: some people non-neighbors he asked the question
1: Seeking to say, who is not my neighbor? There's a group that's not neighbor, and there's a group that's neighbor. And here's Jesus' punchline, if you want it earlier. There is no non-neighbor. Everyone's a neighbor. The very people you think should not be included are still your neighbor. So the summary to the Jewish lawyer, why don't you go learn from the out? How to care for the discarded. How do you go learn? Why don't you go learn from the foreigner, non Jew, the one you consider other? Why don't you go learn how he is the hero of the story? Where do I get this? Look at verse 30 with me now. So he's answering the question. The question was, and who is my neighbor? Probably should have been, how can I be a loving neighbor to all? That wasn't the question. The question was, who is my neighbor? Verse 30, Jesus replied, and he tells a story. Man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, about 18 miles, descends really sharply, which means it's winding, so it's an easy place for people to hide out and to literally rob people. And so, this man fell among robbers. Verse 30, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a
0: Levite... When he came to the place, saw him and passed by on the other side. So all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. These were Jewish law keepers. And you would know if you heard priest and Levite, they were the ones that should be the most law abiding, the most caring. And what did they do? They passed by on the other side.
1: Whenever you see a repeat in the text, I just want you to flag it to say they distanced themselves from me. Okay, verse 33, but a, what's the next word? Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, why did he have to mention Samaritan? He could have totally left that out, and the point would have been pretty powerful, right? The point was... Don't move to the other side, draw near, meet physical needs because when the punchline is asked at the end which one was a neighbor, that guy was a neighbor because he met needs, he showed mercy, go be like him. You could totally have that punchline without saying he was a Samaritan. Why did he say he was a Samaritan? He could have said he was a rich man, he could have said he was a woman, he could have said he was poor, he could have just said he was a leper, he could have just said and a man or a person. He called him a Samaritan. Why? The reason why is the same reason he could have told the story with a woman at the well without telling that she was a Samaritan. It's the same reason in Luke 17 that he could have just said 10 lepers came for healing and only one came back. But then he says, and the one that came back was a Samaritan. Why? Jesus was intentional and intentionally provocative about ethnicity in the Bible. He mentioned ethnicity in these cases to inflame the spiritual arthritis in the joints of his hearers. He wanted their stiffness to hurt. They had become stiff toward anyone unlike them, and they had become self-righteous, and they had stopped loving others because of race or religion, which is kind of this ethnic bucket. Jesus used their differences. And made some unlikely heroes and some as objects of grace, and specifically called out their ethnicity for it. Jesus is getting glory for his name by taking the two and making them one, by taking all peoples and making them one new people in Christ. He is about uprooting unloving hearts, self righteous hearts, racist, unwelcoming hearts. And let's be clear. This danger of making some people non-neighbors, of acting superior to other people, of distancing yourself from other ethnicities and making someone a non-neighbor because of their upbringing or their race or their economics. That danger is not only for some ethnicities, but for all people. Everywhere. Jesus will have none of it. He will have none of it. He is about uprooting uprooting evil in the heart to bring the many diverse peoples and making them into one new family by faith in Jesus Christ. One family united by his blood. So, why include it? Because it matters. Remember the point there is no non neighbor, everyone's a neighbor. And the Jews had made Samaritans non neighbors. And so, what did he do? He made the Samaritan. The teacher for the Jewish lawyer on what the law teaches. Brilliant. You cannot understand parts of the message
0: of this passage if you don't allow the Samaritan as the hero to be a scandal. It is a rebuke
1: of the racism of the Jewish leaders. And as we read the passage, we all must do a heart scan. And ask ourselves, have we made another race or group or worldview a non-neighbor? When Christ says, welcome others as Christ has welcomed you. So God wants us mindful of race and ethnicity because it affects our biblical interpretation. You cannot be biblically faithful and be silent about race and culture, especially as the Bible speaks. This passage growing up for me had one title. It might even have that title in your Bible. It was called The Parable of What? The Good Samaritan. The Parable of the Good Samaritan. It was not a controversial title at all that this individual's ethnicity was mentioned. But now, sometimes, just to mention ethnicity, you are guilty of some type of political agenda. Friends, this is a biblical agenda. This is the Bible's agenda to be faithful to the text. You must cross cultures to be faithful to scripture. You must acknowledge the Bible's cross cultural nature. And when you don't, when you read the Bible very narrowly from a monocultural understanding, you will miss its message. Previous generations in the American Bible, especially. When some would read Israel, they would import American whites as God's chosen people. And it fostered all kinds of not only poor interpretation, but license within our country to view some people as lesser. And to treat people as lesser. But the same is with the black Hebrew Israelites. Where the black Hebrew Israelites read Israel, and Israel is the black ethnicity. They are God's chosen people. And that too is a perversion of the scriptures and leads to all kinds of hatefulness towards other ethnicities. I remember talking to my grandmother, she had a copy of the Book of Mormon. She was not Mormon, she was a devout believer, but had it for study purposes. And it was back in the early 1900s. And if you look at the Book of Mormon, in the early 1900s, I think it's in the Book of Nephi or something like that. Book of Mormon, false teaching, it's not scripture, you know, let's just be really clear about this. But when you look at it, it says that the people of God are a, literally says this, a white and delightsome people. If you look at the Book of Mormon now, I think it's a 2000 past, it says a pure and delightsome people. They just scrubbed it out of history that
0: the way they read and understood their world and even their, quote, scriptures
1: was tainted by their mono-ethnic worldview. Friends, I'm telling you, it affects our biblical interpretation. And the healthier we are at being able to cross cultures, the healthier we are at being a all-people's people, the better our biblical interpretation
0: will be. Because it's a history of Israel, <laughs> it's a history of Babylon
1: or Assyria or Rome, we've got to understand. We are crossing cultures every time we open the Bible. Now, I get it. Because of 2020 and all the racial drama that happened, it sometimes just feels easier not to talk about the elephant in the room. I get it. It makes me timid at times. I get it there's too much at stake according to the scriptures that we are meant to be a physical display of the beauty of Christ, of how warring individuals, people who would include others as non-neighbors, how all of a sudden, by the miraculous blood of Jesus, we are one new people in him. It's just not biblically faithful to be silent about race and ethnicity from the scriptures. It's all over the place. The Egyptians oppressed Israel for their race. Moses married a Cushite or an Ethiopian woman. And there was a tension that's brought about that and the text pulls it out. Ruth, being from Moab, matters theologically. Rahab, being a Gentile, matters theologically. Look at Jesus' genealogy. It has scandal in it partially because of ethnicity. Understanding anything about the sojourner in the scriptures, you have to deal with the fact that they were rightfully not included, and then God says, no, you should include them, all because of their ethnicity. Acts chapter 6, the Hellenistic widows were neglected, and it was about their ethnicity. Paul making a huge deal about this mystery idea Jews and Gentiles being brought together as one in one new people. Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council was about how the church was going to deal with racial tensions. Paul rebuking Peter along ethnic lines, becoming a gate to acceptance in Christ that was out of step with the gospel. And the last I read, one day we're all going to sit around the throne and we're going to worship together as one people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. If that's the end, I want a part of it now. We cannot be silent about what is so precious about displaying the glory of Jesus to the world.
0: Some of us would be okay to never talk about race again, and some of us make race way too prominent in our world, see everything as racial or racial injustice. That's not okay either. The lesson is this don't be indifferent, don't be consumed. Be biblical in your interpretation
1: and your application of how to live it out. If we are called to be a multi ethnic people, the church, the living demonstration of what it looks like, then not only does it lead to healthier biblical interpretation, but better evangelistic care. Friends, I get it. Some parts of our world are very mono ethnic. I get that. Some parts of our world don't have a lot of diversity. I get that. But our city is not one of those, our city is very diverse. So when it comes to reaching our neighbor with the gospel, we've got to start looking like our neighbors and we've got to start engaging our neighbors with the gospel. That means the more we interact across cultural lines, the better we will be at evangelism, applying the gospel to people's unique life situation. Being a multi people not only gives us healthy biblical interpretation, better evangelistic care, but it matters for global impact and obedience to the great commission. The Great Commission is go, therefore, make disciples of all peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. And I'll be with you until the end. To fulfill the Great Commission is a cross-cultural endeavor. And the more we live that out where we are, the better equipped we will be as goers and senders.
0: Goers and senders to fulfill the great commission. I ran across the passages.
1: I'm reading through Acts and Bible reading plans. Not too late. Join on in. Jump in Acts. Acts 7, 19. Stephen is speaking about the history of Israel. And he says this. Speaking of the Egyptian king, Pharaoh, who enslaved hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Jews. It was said he dealt shrewdly with our race. And forced our fathers to expose their infants. So that they would not be kept alive. Now follow the logic there. Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Back in Exodus. He targeted them for their race. That's Stephen's words. Targeted them for their race. Oppressed them in such a way. That it led to the death of infants. To be negligent. Of racial issues. Will also have an effect on how we see global poverty and global genocide, atrocities, killing, etc. This whole idea of racial superiority and creating not neighbor because of race,
0: it can lead to physical oppression, and it has since the beginning. Atrocities with white European individuals. In America, enslaving and killing black men, women, and children by the
1: hundreds and thousands, if not millions. We're having a diplomatic boycott right now, right? Over the Olympics? Because the Uyghurs are being targeted in China and are being killed by the thousands. Sent to education camps. Places where they go to die. All over the globe, genocide is occurring. 1940s, the Holocaust. Germans killed Jews because of their race. 30s and 40s, Nazi killed millions of people of Polish descent. 1975, the Khmer Rouge killed 33% of Cambodian people, targeting them because of their race. The Ottoman Empire, you saw Armenians, Greeks, and Assyrians, almost 90% of Armenians were killed because of their ethnicity in a genocide in the Ottoman Empire in the 1900s. That's Turkey. You might have seen Hotel Rwanda, 1994, where the Hutus killed 60% or 70% of the Tutsis. African war against African war. A few years later in Zaire, the Congolese killed, massacred hundreds of thousands of Hutus. Genocide in Bangladesh in the 1970s targeted East Pakistanis, targeted Bangladeshians. Dear friends, if we have our heads in the sand about ethnicity, we will have no clue about the global atrocities when we are taking the gospel to the unreached places of the world. And the better we understand interaction and cross-culturalism together the better we will be at going and sending and praying and spreading the gospel of christ and finally friends we're better together because it provides us a deeper love for one another one of the crucial lessons of the good samaritan is this it's proximity The reason the the Samaritan was supposed to care for that person on the road was because he was walking by him. And honestly, this is a deep burden in my heart that we get so engaged at a national level, but how many of us have literally just invited someone in our own church family over to have a conversation? Food. Let's go to a park. Let's just sit and talk and say, I want to get to know you. And I promise you, Probably no matter who you invite, you will cross cultures. Some of the culture crossing will be ethnic. It will be. It'll be black or white or Hispanic or Middle Eastern or Asian or South Asian or multiple different ethnic groups coming together, but there are other cultures you'll cross. If someone from the South has ever talked to someone from the North, you get you just crossed a culture. Someone from the country ever talks to someone from the city, you know, you just crossed a culture. Rich, speaking to poor, there's culture crossing. We sit down and we ask, how is living here different from where you grew up? Or what are some of your favorite traditions growing up? Or some of your favorite foods? Or how did you grow up spiritually? Some of us grew up really legalistic. Some of us grew up with no religion at all. Some of us grew up in a very healthy religious context. You're crossing religious cultures. The point is this, the church is meant to be a display of the multifaceted, faceted multi-ethnic love of Christ that brings all people into one new people by the blood of Jesus. We're better together. And Romans 15 tells us, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. At the end of the day, it's about his glory. He gets more glory when diversity relates in harmony. Now, I knew the last one I wouldn't have much time for, so I made it shorter. I do believe we've talked about it a ton, but I do want to make sure that it's very clear that we as a church must be a community committed to care for the poor and the vulnerable. The passage goes on to say this. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his animal... Provided transportation, provided medical treatment, and brought him to an inn, provided lodging, and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, Take care of him on going medical costs, and whatever you spend, I will repay you when you come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he said, you can almost see it sheepishly. The one who showed mercy. Jesus said, Yeah, you go and you do likewise. It couldn't be clearer. The passage is that the people of God should not declare non neighbor, but the people of God are meant to be a people who not only include the outcast,
0: but care for the needy. The people of God care for the poor. Jesus is telling us that neighbor love for his people is meeting the needs of the messy, the poor, the abused, the neglected. Matthew 25 could not be clearer. If you know the passage, the picture is the judgment
1: seat, the judgment day. Before him were gathered all the nations, all the peoples, and he's going to separate one from the other. And he will place the sheep on one side and the goats on the other. And then the king will say, come, you who are blessed, who have inherited the kingdom, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food, I was thirsty, you gave me drink, I was a stranger, you welcomed me, I was naked, you clothed me, I was sick and you visited me, I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we do these things? That very question shows that we're not doing it for acceptance, but from acceptance. When did we do these things? And then he says. And when. I'll go verse 40. And the king will answer. Truly I say to you. As you did it to the least of these my brothers. You did it to me. The care for the poor was a literal caring for Jesus in that moment. These poor brothers and sisters. Galatians chapter 2 verses 9 through 10. When James and Peter were sending Paul out. They said, verse 10, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. When Paul was sent out, he was supposed to have a keen eye towards the poor. Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. It says, let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. If you read the commentaries, that means do physical good things. And especially to those who are the household of faith. The good he's encouraging us to do is to meet physical needs of those in need, not only to the church, but to the lost world. Why did God set it up this way? Because God gives us physical pictures to teach us spiritual realities. He gives us physical pictures to teach us spiritual realities. What's the spiritual reality he wants us to learn when we care for the person that cannot help themselves? Answer, blessed are those who are what in spirit? Poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. When you care for the needy, it's meant to be a reflexive picture back to you that says, this is my heart apart from Christ. I'm needy. I need Christ. It also, in care for the poor, it exposes self-righteousness. It can expose our temptation to act superior and to view ourselves as better. The passage is teaching us in Luke 10. Neighbor love means God's people generously meet the felt needs of others. At this church, we're going to care for people who are hurting whether it be single parents and the broken family, whether it be vulnerable children, the unborn, the orphan, the teens, whether it be those who are wrongfully uh, imprisoned or trafficked, enslaved, or whether it's the sojourner, the immigrant, the refugee, we're going to have a keen eye towards the poor around us and seek to link arms and resources and in time to care for others. Whenever you talk this way, people are so scared. They're scared that you're going to lose the gospel. You're going to do a bunch of good things. But will you be a gospel preaching people? We end with these priorities. The Bible has said these five things. If we've done our job, these five things are meant to be the characteristic of love of the people of God. But there are priorities as we do these things. And I just want to lay them out. The priorities of making disciples is this. One. One. I adapted this from David Platt's book and added some things to it. Um, something needs to change. It's this. Work hard to help well amidst earthly suffering through acts of justice and mercy. Two, work harder to work together to keep people from eternal suffering through gospel proclamation and biblical fidelity. Three, work hardest to treasure Jesus above all. If those are our priorities, we will be faithful to love externally while not neglecting being still at the feet of Jesus internally. And I wholeheartedly
0: believe that's why the Mary and Martha story ends the chapter. Martha was so worried that Mary was not helping her with the
1: seven course meal. And so she talks to Mary, talks to Jesus. Why don't you tell Mary to get with the program? And Jesus is basically saying, Mary. Is doing what I've asked her to do. I don't want the seven course meal. I want what she's doing. And so for us. We must be mindful. Of this whole series on our vision. To be a people who first rest in Jesus. Through the word and prayer. So that then we know we are loved. And we live lives of love. Let's pray. Father I thank you. I thank you for loving us. I thank you for caring for us. I thank you for never giving up on us. And I just ask, I ask that we would not rest in our abilities, rest in our ethnicity, rest in our service, rest in our upbringing, rest in our money or position. We'd not rest in anything other than Jesus Christ, that he would be our boast. Father, what we need in this moment
0: is to acknowledge that we are poor and powerless to change ourselves, and to receive the full
1: love of God for us. Father, you love us. And I just ask that if we leave here with anything, we leave here knowing we are loved, not because of what we do,
0: but because of our faith and what you did. We are loved because it's your nature to love
1: just for a moment in this time in the same spirit of prayer. I trust the Lord and I trust His Word that He is pressing in on you. And want you to take one step. One step of love. And I don't know what that is. It could be around the idea of forgiveness. It could be around the idea of doing in order to be accepted. It could be around the idea of creating neighbor and non-neighbor. It could be around the idea of really not wanting to care for those in need I don't know. But what I know of this is this, is that Jesus is sufficient. He loves you and if you trust in him, he lives inside of you and he'll give you everything you need to follow what he's pressing in on your heart at this moment. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I call you to repent of sin. That means acknowledge that you are a sinner, cannot save yourself, only Jesus can. And you acknowledge that he died in your place and he rose from the dead. And that you must align your life with him, which just comes by confessing him as your only savior, your only hope. Right now, let's just take a minute to reflect on what Jesus is pressing on our hearts. And then we'll sing to us, convince us of your love for us, you may overflow as we sing
0: and as we leave. Let's stand together.